0: And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands, not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel... While they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, "Son." Stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set up for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel.
1: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all again after having some vacation time. And we are back in the book of Joshua, the third Sinus section. We started in October. We did a section of chapters. We took a break for Advent. We did a second section. And then since the end of February, we were in the book of Colossians. And now this summer, we're going to finish out uh, the book of Joshua in the pertinent sections that we're going to study um, you know, I not only do I study for sermons; I read for pleasure quite a bit, and I tend to read history. Uh, and as one of my undergraduate degrees, I love history. I have two history books I'm reading right now. One of which is called "The Revolutionary" by Stacy Schiff, which is the biography of Samuel Adams. It's not about the beer; it's about the founding father and all that he d- did, and how influential he is in our nation. And I was struck in reading that biography by, uh, and not for the first time. How people who are on separate sides of an issue can both believe that God is on their side. So it's interesting that you read Sam Adams, you read the, the other founding fathers, and many of the others uh, from the colonial, the colonist side, what we would say the right side of that conflict, except for Hazel, wherever Hazel is. Um, <laughs> We would, uh, she's from England, Uh, we would think, you know, God is on our side. But it's interesting, you read the writings of generals and soldiers from England, and guess what they believed? God was on their side. Uh, This always happens. In fact, you even see it in World War II. It's easy for the Allies to believe that God is on our side against the Nazis. I mean, how obvious is that? Yet, what's interesting is that when you look at the uniform of the German army, the Wehrmacht, The the standard belt buckle has the words, God with us, on the belt buckle. So even the Nazis thought God was on their side, and the Allies think God is on our side. With this idea of God being on our side, um, David Jackman reminds us of the tension that Abraham Lincoln felt in the Civil War, where Obviously, there were loud voices from the south believing that God was on their side and loud voices from the north where God was on their side. And Lincoln made the wise observation, the key issue is not whether God is on my side, but whether I am on God's side. And that's an important observation, important truth. And what's clear in the passage this morning is that the Israelites were on God's side. And as a result, they experienced his blessing and power. This passage is very familiar to many of us who have been raised in church or with Christian parents. We heard the story in Sunday School Children's Church at home of Joshua commanding the sun and the moon to stand still. Some of you, it may be a new story. But even for those of you who it's very familiar, hopefully this morning we're going to take a fresh look at it and you will benefit from several gospel applications that we're going to derive from it. First of all, God's in the first five verses, we see that God's obedient people inevitably face opposition. We didn't read the first five verses, but what was there was the reaction of the city-states in essentially the southern part of Canaan, to the, the news that Hebron, or excuse me, that the Gibeonites had made a treaty and a covenant with Israel. So now we have to go back almost four months to the last message in Joshua chapter nine. Let me remind you what happened there. Here's the Israelites, they're in the land, and one day a group of people approached them and they looked like they had been on a long journey. Remember that story? They, they were dressed in rags, they were thirsty, their food was moldy, you know, they, it was obvious these guys have come a long way, and they say, we're from a far country, and we've heard about you guys, and we've heard about your God, and we want to establish a peace treaty with you, a covenant with you, so that we can do business and we don't have to be at war with one another. And the Israelites, they, they looked at their food, and, and they realized, okay, yeah, and they made a peace treaty. And then three days later, they find out that they had been tricked. These people weren't from a far country. They were from about 20 miles away. From the city of Gibeon, which was a a very strong city on top of the mountain range, just down the road from Jerusalem a few miles. Well, what happens is when the king of Jerusalem, the city-state of Jerusalem, and a very strong, probably maybe the strongest city in the land at that time, he hears about this. He says, there's no way I can have a city that's allied with Israel right down the road in my own backyard. And so he turns to all of these other city-states in the southern part of the nation, other Amorite kingdoms and things, and he says, listen, we need to put our differences aside, band together, and let's take out Gibeon. We can't have them in our own backyard an ally of Israel. Then we need to think about Israel, right? That's what's going on here. Strategically, it makes sense what he's doing here, but there's actually a spiritual aspect that we need to highlight, that man's rebellion and sin is so deep that natural enemies become allies against God and his people. I mean, these these kings that were mentioned in these first five verses um, they, they didn't get along. They fought with one another. They were enemies many times, but now they're allies. And, and what's interesting is whether it's 1400 you know, B.C. or 2023 A.D., this same thing happens, that God's people will face opposition from natural enemies even when they seek to obey God and to follow his will and live according to his word. We saw a good example of that this week in one of the Supreme Court rulings. If you are familiar with what happened this week, the uh, the the artist and the website developer from Colorado, uh, Lori Smith, was a Christian, and she wanted to expand her business into creating customized websites with Graphics and art and then stories that she would compose about the couples, but she understood that the new anti-discrimination laws in Colorado would threaten her, forcing her to, to, to endorse gay marriage, and she was concerned and she brought suit. And of course, ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled this week that this, the law of Colorado, in Colorado was a violation of the First Amendment. We cannot be compelled to speak and express ideas that we are spiritually opposed to. That, that is the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech that we have. But what's interesting in all of that uh, ordeal is that natural enemies allied against Laurie Smith. So normally you would have found in any other group, for example, guarantee you the ACLU would have been the first group up to defend that woman's rights. But in this case, the ACLU aligns with the state overreach and they actually speak in favor of the law that would have discriminated against this poor lady and her ability to exercise her First Amendment rights. Why does that happen? What is the cause of this kind of response? The the scriptures make clear the issue is a spiritual issue, that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In other words, in our natural state, the depth of our sinfulness is so much is that we will always oppose that which is righteous and good according to God's word. Uh, We will create God in our own image, and that is what we will worship. And that's what we will agree with, and that's what we will endorse. So what you see in this passage immediately is that when we walk with God, when we obey God, when we seek to live according to his word, expect to face opposition. Secondly, in verses 6 to 11, we see that God keeps his covenant promises to his obedient people. In verse 6, when Hebron, or excuse me, when Gibeon, I don't know why I keep saying Hebron, it's now stuck So just understand, if I say Hebron at all this morning, I mean Gibeon, okay? That's just the way it is. Uh, When Gibeon sees the army arrayed against him, even though it's a strong city with 40,000 soldiers, they cry, help. They send an emissary immediately to Joshua, and they say, hey, would you please abide by the terms of the covenant? Come help us. Now, what's interesting, I think, is if I were in that, I know myself well enough, unfortunately, that uh, if I were in that situation and I had been tricked by someone into a treaty and now all of a sudden they call for my help, yeah, uh, third Thursday, three months from now, I'll be there. Uh, this, is the, this is chance we can weasel out of this agreement, right, that we were tricked into this bad deal. That would have been a strong temptation for me. I'm sure that that was maybe a temptation for some in Israel But you notice Joshua doesn't hesitate, not at all. Verse seven, Joshua went up from Gilgal. the idea is he immediately, he gathered all of the people of war, the army and all the mighty men of valor. Now to put this in perspective, what he does when he gets the news, he gathers them up and in the middle of the night, he makes an incredibly dangerous journey of 20 miles. He goes from 1,300 feet below sea level to 3,000 feet above sea level and narrow you know, mountain trails. He carries the entire army up here. By the way, a journey that a few chapters earlier, the people of Israel took three days to make at a normal leisurely pace. But somehow in eight to 10 hours, he brings the entire army up to Gibeon to honor the terms of the covenant. And what you see here, is God's unequivocal response to this step of obedience and the integrity that Joshua demonstrates. Verse eight, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What he does is he assures uh, Joshua in the same way that we saw at the very beginning of this series of messages in in October. Remember that very first sermon, we kind of keyed in on how, how scared Joshua was. He was petrified at what stood before him and the, the specter of leading the people into the promised land and all that was entailed with conquering these strong city-states that existed there. And in response to his fear in Joshua chapter 1, God promises Joshua no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so here, when Joshua is actually facing, I think, the hardest test yet, this is a, a, a large, uh, um, powerful army. Uh, some estimates say that the, the, those city-states could marshal around 200,000 soldiers and they occupy the high ground, and Israel is about to face them after doing a forced march uphill all night long. I mean, anybody who knows anything, you're tired, you're exhausted just getting there, and this is what faces them. And, but yet, in light of all of that, Joshua's confident, because God keeps his covenant promises to Israel. God shows up big in these verses. On this day, the Lord fights for his obedient people and he ensures their victory. In verses nine to 11, you have a summary of the entire battle. And then the subsequent verses all the way through to the end of the chapter are the unpacking and the details of what took place on that day. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times when you read verses 9 to 11, even in our, the standard translation that we use here at the church, which is the ESV, um, some translations kind of muddy the waters a little bit so that the main point of verses 9 to 11 is subdued. It's not completely absent, but it's not as prominent as it should be. So in other words, when we read verses 9 to 11 just now, when Sandy read it, the flow of it goes something like this. Joshua marched the army all night. They get up there. They begin to fight against the Gibeonites. God, you know, kind of uh, sows... Uh, anxiety and confusion among the Amorites and they begin to to retreat and to flee from before the Israelites. The Israelites then pursue them all the way down the the backside of the mountain. They're fighting the whole way. They're killing them. There's battles going on. Maybe there's like a rear guard action from the Amorites until they finally get down into the plains of Judea and somewhere along in there God again shows up and huge hailstones come down killing more Amorites than the Israelites actually killed with a sword. That's kind of the flow of what we just read in verses 9 to 11. But the grammar in the original kind of changes that some. The grammar in the original is singular. He, the focus on all of these verses is on God and what he does to these enemies of his people who are walking with him and obeying him. The, the New American Standard actually, I think, does a a clearer job of bringing to us what is said in the Hebrew text. And those In that translation, you read, Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. Sandy did a better job in pronunciation, by the way. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now in no way am I trying to diminish the importance of God's people working with God and cooperating and fighting and obeying and serving him. And and this passage is often used. It's interesting how so many of the commentaries, they they come to this passage and they use it as a a great example of God's sovereignty and human responsibility working in conjunction with one another. And, And just to be clear, certainly that truth is throughout this entire chapter, chapter 10, even, especially in the succeeding verses, chapter 11 and 12, even more, you see this synthesis of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But this passage here, in this portion of the text, the focus is on God, how he fights for his people who are obeying him and walking with him, and yet they are still facing very real, dangerous discouraging obstacles. And I don't want us to downplay this emphasis. This emphasis is here for a reason. The emphasis here in verses nine to 11 is is meant to encourage us. We belong to the sovereign, omnipotent creator of the universe who stands ready to fight for his people and to ensure our victory. That's the main point of verses nine to 11. God is now on the scene The issue is settled, (laughs) and I love this, and we should emphasize this truth. This is true at the big cosmic level, at the macro level, at the corporate level of the church, when we think of the church as the kingdom of God, and how we need to hear these words even right now. I got another update from our brother, uh, Ken Tombing in India uh, about a week ago or so. And he was able to get again, you know, the, the Hindu extremists in Manipur province have just shut down all communications, internet, telephone, everything. And he, for a brief moment, he was able to get a report out. And he told us that yet like another hundred churches and Christian homes and businesses have been burned to the ground. Hundreds more people have died. They have a humanitarian crisis now of more than 100,000 refugees The fighting is everywhere, and Christians are being forced to either recant or die. It's like something out of the 200s with Diocletian and his his persecution in the Romans. And yet, in this dark hour, and it is certainly dark for Ken and Ruth and Let's continue to pray for them and for our partners and the churches that we have helped plant. We've probably done a dozen, maybe close to a dozen churches in this region of the world. And let's make sure that we're praying for them. And that even though as we do that, and it is dark, and it seems like the enemies of Christ are winning, just understand, like the Amorites, they are storing up God's wrath and a hailstorm is coming. A hailstorm is coming. And God is going to respond to his people. This is true at the macro, the big corporate level, but church is also true at the personal level, that God keeps his covenant promises to his obedient people. All of us experience opposition to our faith if we are true to Christ. We experience it in our culture. We may experience it at work, in our family. Certainly we experience the temptations on so many fronts and Many of us, we, we have a common experience. Many times we stand strong and we're victorious, but many times we are not. We fail. We fall. We sin. We disobey. And yet God keeps his covenant promises to us. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't wash his hands of us. This is the the good news of the new covenant, the gospel of the new covenant, compared to the old covenant. And the old covenant, very much God's blessing and protection of the people was dependent upon their obedience to the covenantal stipulations. But the good news of the new, uh, new covenant is that God keeps his covenantal promises even In spite of us sometimes. And how can he do that? Because he looks at us through the perfect obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ. When he looks at us as sons and daughters of God who are in covenant with him, yes, we sin and we fall, but our obedience isn't our obedience. It's Jesus' obedience that provokes God to never forsake us, to never turn his back upon us to never wash his hands of us, but instead to intervene and come into our lives and be loyal to us and to convict us and to comfort us and to do what is necessary to pull us back and put us on the right path to pour his grace and his mercy out upon us. God does all of that because he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us So that we might be the righteousness of God. That's why the new covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that God's blessing in your life and his covenantal faithfulness to you to never leave you, to never forsake you, but to always walk with you is dependent upon Jesus' obedience, that perfect obedience, and not our perfect obedience. How much trouble would we be in if it was based upon that? Whenever we come across passages where God's sovereignty is on such display, understand it isn't there to render human responsibility as unnecessary or just a secondary matter. Passages like this are actually meant to encourage us to trust God, to To not just believe in God, but to believe God and respond accordingly. That's why these passages are here. I appreciate the balance that Ralph Davies brings to this idea in his study of Jonah. He writes, We frequently look at the teaching of divine sovereignty too simplistically. Some will allege that if God ordains something as certain, it renders human effort irrelevant. Let go and let God. But Joshua knew better. His view was not to let go, but to grab hold. Divine sovereignty creates confidence, which calls forth our effort, even to the point of reckless abandon. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles us, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles, but an elixir that invigorates. We see how the sovereignty of God emboldened Joshua in these final verses of our text, and it provides us with our takeaway truth this morning, that God works miraculously in response to his people. Verses 12 and 14 are key in this passage. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord. In other words, Joshua did what? Prayed. He prayed to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of isolation and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies is this not written in the book of Joshua the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day so this is the last supernatural miracle in the book of Joshua and it is a doozy it's a big one and it provokes strong responses, especially, I would say, from, from skeptics, from uh, so-called liberal Christians that come to passages like this, and there's a definite eye roll. There's a definite sense of disbelief. And if that's you this morning, I, understand, I get it. I've heard it. You know, I've heard, how can you possibly believe these miraculous stories like this in the Bible? I mean, just think about how absurd this is. This is a, a group of provincial people who think, that the earth revol- that the sun revolves around the earth and that the sun just stopped. And we all know that the earth revolves around the sun and spins. And that's why we have day and night. They're just a bunch of, you know, ignorant, you know, bronze age rubes who, you know, are making things up. And I understand why you might think that way and consider that. How impossible. I mean, this is quite the thing. If 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 actually what happened here is that the earth stopped spinning. Do you realize the magnitude of that? I mean, I, I did some, I did a, 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 probably stupidly so because it took me down a rabbit hole, but I did, a, I did a, a, a search. What would happen if the earth stopped spinning? And it is quite dramatic. I mean, at the equator, the earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. So imagine what happens. Just think about it. If you've ever ridden with me and all of a sudden I hit the brakes, what happens to you, Right? Well, imagine if you're going, you're on a ball of rock, we're moving at you know, somewhere close to 1,000 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, what happens to everybody on the planet? They fly to their death. Anything not nailed down just flies and is crushed. Tsunamis, earthquakes that will devastate it. And even worse, the, the atmospheric winds that are moving at 1,000 miles an hour will scour the earth clean in a heartbeat. That's what happens if the earth stops spinning, okay? And so I get it. If you're a skeptic, you're going, yeah, right, earth stops spinning, okay? I understand. I understand that. Um, I understand why you would scoff. And, and part of the reason why you scoff, I just want you to hear me for a moment, or you're skeptical, is because you look to science. Functionally, science is your God. And science does not allow for the miraculous, for faith doesn't allow for that. But I do hope you understand something. That in making the conclusion that something like this cannot happen, or any of the miracles that are in the Bible cannot happen, your conclusion is not based upon factual evidence that has been submitted to the scientific method. Your conclusions are beliefs. They are acts of faith that are based upon a philosophical presupposition. That's what you have. You see, the only difference between us, we're both people of faith. We both believe in science. The difference is is that functionally your God is science. You don't have room for a supernatural God to explain what you can't explain. Whereas my God is the God of the Bible who gives us science, gives us the truth of science, but also says... He is greater than any kind of scientific, naturalistic truth. But at the end of the day, you don't want to hear this. But you, like me, are a person of faith. Person of faith. So, let's think about what happened on this day. Um, if you were raised with this story, like Sunday school, I kind of and I were talking about this, and I told her how I learned it, and she goes, "Yeah, yeah, you know." You know, here's what happened. This is what we were taught as children, right? Uh, Joshua shows up. The battle begins. They are fighting. It's back and forth. We don't know who's going to win because the Amorites are so strong. Somewhere, maybe around noon, maybe later in the afternoon, the battle seems to be turning towards Israel. But Joshua realizes, I need more what? Time. And so he speaks to the sun and moon. It's frozen for up to a day. He needs at least another 24 hours, but in that time, he wins this great battle. That's the version that I learned. How many of you learned something similar to that? Okay, yeah, right. Well, immediately, there's two issues with that. First of all, the text itself says that when these words are said, the sun is over Gibeon and the moon is over the valley Ajalon. So what does that mean? Uh, Gibeon is in the east. Aizelon is in the west. The sun is in the east. The moon is in the west. These words are not said at high noon or later in the day. They're being said at daybreak. I mean, we're in Florida. Sometimes when the sun comes up, you look over there, what do you see? The moon. For a little while, and then there we are. That's the time of day that these words are said. So that's curious. Why why would Joshua ask for everything to stand still at the very beginning of the day before the battle ever actually even seems to begin? A second issue, and this is the bigger issue, is that when you look at the original text, the original text does not demand only one legitimate interpretation that the earth stopped spinning and that the sun stood still. It doesn't demand that. Now, to be clear, that could be the meaning. Okay, I want to make it very clear It could be that God, in his miraculous power, absolutely stopped the spinning of the earth and at the same moment mitigated all of the natural consequences that would have occurred with the stopping of the spinning of the earth. So certainly, one of the legitimate options as you look at this passage in the original language and you compare it to all of scripture is that God just did this incredibly magnificent miracle. There's absolutely no reason why that can't be there. But I do want to make sure that we're being intellectually honest as we compare scripture to scripture and we look at scripture. And this is important, Christians, because when we interact, and maybe those of you who are unbelievers or skeptics, you need to hear that as Christians, we don't check our brains at the door. That we look at the passages of scripture and we allow them to speak for themselves and we believe accordingly. And so when you look at this passage, one, one author, David Howard, who I think has probably the, has the most in-depth work on Joshua, has concluded that there are actually five orthodox interpretations of what could have happened, all of which you can justify in the text itself. So you're not making stuff up. You're pulling it from elements within the text. So for example, he says one very obvious option is the earth stops spinning. We talked about that. But he also said, based upon the, the wording of the text, that this could be a, a sense of where what, what is being asked for is for the sunlight to linger um, like, like you see in Alaska or Denmark or Sweden. So, that, so that what God did was some form of refraction of light that, you know, that allowed it to stay uh, visible and illuminated. Uh, another one, which is also very, has a lot going for it, is that he's actually asking for the opposite that the sunlight, the bright sunlight would be blocked in some way, that it wouldn't come out in full force with all of the heat. And they point to the timing of the request that had been marching all night. And what Joshua was actually asking for is for God to keep it hazy, keep it you know, cloudy. And then so he sends a hailstorm and all these things so that they could, would be more refreshed as they fight. That's certainly a possibility. Several point out that it could be that what is being asked for here is an omen that would, would, that would freak out the Amorites. The Amorites had a, a system of omens, good and bad, evil omens. And some of those omens dealt with, uh, with the cosmos, cosmos. And sun and moon being in the sky on certain days was, was you know evil. Other days, it was a blessing. And so it could be that this is one of those days where he says, hey, put it out there to freak them out. And they see that and they freak out. The, 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 the um, explanation that Howard himself uh, believes is that this, that this passage is figurative. Okay? And we have to acknowledge that as you look at it in your text, for example, you'll see it's set in a poetic framework. It is poetry. And so Howard points out that what this is, in his mind, is that this is a poetic amplification of the prose portions of the text. And that it is similar to what we see in many other places in the Bible. So, for example, in the book of Judges, when they are fighting the Midianites, Deborah and Barak, you read from heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. Did the stars literally fight against Sisera? No, this was a a poetic amplification that was pointing to God intervening on behalf of the, of the Israelites against the Midianites. You see it again in Habakkuk chapter three where the prophet is praising God for his intervention saying, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. That's clearly figurative poetic language as he's looking in his day at things God did, he's saying, in light of what you've done, all of the heavens are in awe of your power. And so what Howard suggests is that this is what you have going on in this passage. Literally, the underlying language could read that Joshua prays, but then he who speaks to the sun and the moon is not Joshua. The antecedent of he is God. God. And God speaks to the sun and the moon, essentially saying, step back in awe. Watch what I am about to do here with the Amorites. This would be what we see in other situations, like those of you who are familiar with the Psalms. The hills clap their hands. The rocks sing out. There's numerous passages where the stars bow down before God and his power. So this is poetic language of where God is now stepping in To intervene, he is going to do something mighty and powerful, and the heavens themselves need to stand up and pay attention to what their creator is about to do. Perfectly acceptable. And in all of those explanations, wherever you land, that's not the point. That's not the point. And this is what we do, right, as Christians. We, we bug out on these details that are interesting, and we try to figure out, you know, and we do it in passages like we, Man, we take us to the book of Revelation, and now we're really Alice in Wonderland, right? I mean, this is what we do. It's not the point at all. And so if we focus on this, we miss the point of these verses if we obsess over the details and the meanings of the cosmic miracle. Absolutely, in some way, just to be clear. I don't want anybody walking out of here thinking Jerry doesn't believe in miracles. No, absolutely, God could have intervened in nature and He affected the sun and moon, maybe in one of those four ways. I kind of, honestly, I do kind of side with Howard that this is just looking at scripture to scripture and the, the composition that there's this is a poetic element to expand on the prose portions, and it's in line with what God does in other portions of scripture, but could be. There's no reason why not. I mean, let's face it, church. God has miraculously intervened in human history in in ways that are as equally stupendous. He took on flesh and was born of a virgin. He lined everything up and carried off the crucifixion so we could have our sins forgiven. And most importantly, the largest, greatest miracle in all of history, he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and elevated him to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And so you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the miraculous. C.S. Lewis says, if in your mind you reject the miraculous and claim to be a Christian, you have left Christianity and embraced religion instead. That's what's going on. However, the figurative view, one of the reasons why I believe it is because verse 14 doesn't call this a day like no other due to the sun standing still and the moon staying in its course. If you look at verse 14, it doesn't say, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord caused the sun to stand still. No. The point of this verse, it's in verse 14. Don't miss this. There's not been a day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. That's the point of this passage and this verse, is that God responded To his servant's prayer, who was obeying him and walking with him, and he responded to it with miraculous power. The point of this passage is God listened to the prayer of his servant when he and his people needed his power and presence and intervention. He didn't ignore him. He didn't turn his back on him. There's a story in our family. Catherine got this point when she was three years old. We were talking about it this morning. She said, I could tell it, so I'm not intentionally embarrassing her. But when she was three, her mom, her dad was a pastor in Arkansas. Her mom had her around three. She had a, a toddler. So like you young moms, you know what that's like. And her mom apparently had been talking about how she was overwhelmed and didn't have enough time to get everything done and all of that. And so she, her mom, at some point, walks into another room, and she finds Catherine on her knees praying. And forget it, she's three years old, she's praying. And so her mom asks her, Catherine, what are you praying for? And she says, I'm asking the Lord to make the sun stand still for three days so you can get all your work done. Okay. <laughs> Parents, teach your children the word of God. They pick it up quickly. But you know what? That little three-year-old Catherine got the point that this passage is saying, people of God, when you're walking with God, come to your father with everything that you are facing and lay it before him and step back and watch and see how he intervenes and brings his power about. Yes, he showed up big maybe the sun moon that's yeah, fine but he still exerted his miraculous power i mean think about the miracle of hailstones falling from the sky killing all the amorite soldiers when they're in close contact battle with the israel so the, the hail hits the amorites not the israelites and kills more amorites than it does by by hailstones than the israelites do but their sword how miraculous is that So it's not that God's miraculous power is not on full display in this passage. It is. But what we take away from this is this aspect of prayer. That we have this privilege. I mean, think about why this is so important this morning. Some of you have walked into this room, and you have heavy hearts. And some of you have walked into this room, and you are engaged in... This hardest kind of spiritual warfare, facing sin and habits of sin in your life, and you're wanting deliverance from these things. Some of you walk into, have walked into this room, and your future is uncertain, and there's major changes happening in your life. And do I go right, or do I go left, and what's about to happen? And you're uprooting family, and, and all kinds of things are occurring in your life. Some of you have gotten news from a doctor recently, and it's not good news. Some of you carrying burdens for children and family members as they have rejected the faith that you have taught them. And think about this. If through the ministry of Joshua, God would listen to his prayer and act on behalf of his people Israel, how much more does God listen to our better Joshua, Jesus? Who is seated at his right hand, interceding for us, advocating for us, bringing our needs directly to the Father. How much more and better is that than even what the children of Israel had? What an encouragement it is for us. This passage says, bring your fears. Bring your failures. Bring your anxieties. Bring your challenges. Bring your sin struggles Bring your anxieties and confusions and doubts. Lay them down at the feet of Jesus and let him intercede for you. Christian, God himself, the Holy Spirit, lives in you, standing ready to groan before the Father with the words that we ourselves do not even know to utter. Praise the Lord for this gift that we have because we are in Christ Jesus. Exercise it this week. Lord Jesus, thank you for this privilege of coming to your house, coming to your word, and being encouraged to believe in your miraculous, sovereign power that is absolute over everything. And in light of that, bring the most minuscule needs, bring the important needs like more time to get housework done, more ability the serious struggles that we have to the distress that's in our soul due to the death of those that we love or to the verdict of a doctor and everything in between you tell us to bring to you in faith not wavering knowing that you are a good father an all-powerful father who delights in intervening and rescuing his children. Give us the grace to not rely upon ourselves, but to humbly turn to you and trust in you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.